Welcome to Conversations from the Collection, a Newcastle Art Gallery podcast. This podcast was produced on the land of the Awabakal and Waramai people. We pay our deepest respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm your host, Zana Kobayashi, and each episode we'll be diving into a new collection area of the Newcastle Art Gallery to uncover hidden stories from artists who have contributed to the significance of our diverse collection. In this episode, we speak with celebrated Torres Strait Islander artist and curator, Brian Robinson. Brian is probably best known for his distinctive printmaking practice and his iconic public art sculptures. Throughout his career, Brian has carefully balanced his highly successful art-making practice alongside his work as a curator, developing some of the most important exhibitions of Torres Strait Islander material culture, including Warra Warra, The Art of Torres Strait, which was held at Newcastle Art Gallery in 2021. We caught up with Brian online, who joined us from Gimoy, also known as Cairns, in far north Queensland. Hi! Hello, how are you going? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good, thanks. That's good. We could have filled an entire series talking about Brian's achievements, but for today's episode, we've focused on some of the major milestones in his career, including creating an Australian landmark, designing the Athletes Parade track at the Commonwealth Games, and developing a distinct printmaking style that combines traditional cultural motifs and pop culture characters. And that's only scratching the surface. But to begin with, we started with Brian's earliest memories growing up on Wyburn Island, also known as Thursday Island in the Torres Strait. Well, I think the the first memories that I always jump to would be living with my grandparents. So a lot of fishing expeditions that would start, you know, before the crack of dawn, getting all the supplies ready and things like that to take down to the dinghy. Fishing, you know, through until about uh, lunchtime, um, coming home, cleaning, you know, the the day's catch, and then, you know, off on the pushy, delivering uh, fish around the island. Even though, you know, it's a small remote um, island, I still had heaps of fun, you know, sort of exploring the island, swimming around the wharves, um, playing, you know, sort of tiggy that would last for, you know, several days. And just, yeah, just just things like that. And was art part of your childhood? Art has always been a part of, yeah, part of that childhood. I always say, you know, I was born with a pencil um, in my hand because I was quite crafty when I first started, you know, grabbing bits and pieces, you know, from around the house, cutting up and building sculpture with, uh, with cardboard and things like that. I was always drawing, so I always had, you know, sort of paper and pens and pencils around. Unfortunately, that drawing didn't always stay on the paper. Um, It went to the table and then, you know, under the table and on the walls. And I got hooked on spray paint. So I used to spray the back fence. So I would make a, a general mess of things, you know, sometimes on a daily basis. So it was, yeah, it was... My life has always been creative in, in that way. <laughs> <laughs> You've just turned it into a career now. <laughs> that's right, that's right. When did the idea of making art a career start to enter your mind? Um, I think it's always been there. You know, visual arts is something that most people would only see as as a hobby, you know, something that you do on the side after work or something like that. 
Um, but I just couldn't, you know, sort of come to grips with that as, as a hobby. And I wanted to, you know, sort of pursue it and make it a full-time career, for a full-time practice. It has taken quite some time. Um, because, you know, there, there was a 14-year um, gap of me working um, as a curator in um, the Cairns Regional Gallery, but, you know, other institutions around the country as well. So that took up, you know, quite a bit of time just developing, you know, that side of my career. And the visual arts would be dragged along, you know, sort of done over the weekends at night. But it's it's always been there and it's always something that um, I've wanted to pursue full-time. I was offered a, a one-month residency, and oh, I think that may have been in 2009. Um, there was an offer from the um, former director of Kick Arts, Ray O'Connell, asking, you know, yeah, whether I'd, you know, sort of, yeah, take a, a bit of a, a sabbatical from the from the gallery and produce prints f- for a month, um, which. Yeah, you know, sort of probably sealed the deal for me, really. I may have stayed at the gallery a little bit longer had that, you know, not uh, not happened. But that that month of, you know, sort of freedom from the gallery, freedom to explore, you know, the, the, the practice a lot more, working on prints every day, basically, was absolutely great. And then so, you know, when I went back to gallery after that, arts practice was probably first and foremost, you know, in my mind. And um, then the offer came again from Ray O'Connell, but this time it was um, it was a 12-month. And so when I had the opportunity to do that, um, I grabbed it with, you know, so with both hands and um, took the plunge. <laughs> Served you well. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to um, move into talking about your works in the Newcastle Art Gallery collection. We hold five of your works and they're bold graphic lino prints that observe traditional art techniques from the Torres Strait Islands, but also reference Western art history and pop culture. For example, a work in the collection titled By Virtue of This Act, I Hereby Take Possession of This Land, it features an image of James Cook against a backdrop of space invaders. When did you start incorporating pop culture characters into your work? You can blame the 12-month residency for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I suppose, you know, sort of after that period of, or during that period of 12 months, you know, sort of print work, constantly having to, you know, sort of think of new ideas, new works. That's where I really started to focus heavily on, you know, the, the use of um, pop culture within the work. Um, because, you know, as, as a small child growing up in the Torres Straits, you know, even though it was, you know, a small remote island, um, I was still heavily influenced by um, by television, by comic books. And so, you know, it was about incorporating, you know, sort of these um, treasured, you know, sort of child experiences um, into the the current works that I was creating um, and making the new works that I created different from a lot of my fellow visual arts colleagues. And so, you know, yeah, the, the works um, themselves, you know, sort of developed that way. And most of the time you really have to look to, to see the the pop cultural references because they they are generally hidden in amongst all the um, all the mineral or you know the the trostrate patterning that yeah. forms you know a big you know sort of part of the work but then with that particular work there by virtue um, 
the the use of the the space invader really you know sort of stands out and you know sort of smacks you in the face because it's you know it sits right at the top of the uh the piece of you know sort of lino um and it's about hammering home you know that that message of the invasion of the country by external foreign you know sort of um people yeah it kind of modernizes that yeah yeah yeah, yeah yeah i would never think to put those two images together but it, they work <laughs> so beautifully together. <laughs> and uh, I suppose, you know, the the pose of Captain Cook as well, it's it's the same pose that um, Nathaniel Dance did in his oil painting. So, yeah, yeah, you know, it's bringing air in um, a number of different things, probably touching more on, you know, sort of political, you know, sort of stance through through the use of the, the Space Invader, that 1970s, you know, sort of pop uh, cultural, you know, sort of icon. The person that, you know, probably everyone throws a, a lot of hate at in terms of, you know, yeah, um, d- you know, supposed discovery of the country and, you know, all the all the turmoil that um, has come about after, after that period, um, as well as looking at the history of, um, of painting, um, looking at those historical figures as well. In another work from our collection, As the Rains Fell and the Seas Rose, You touch on biblical themes, depicting a contemporary version of Noah's Ark. There are Torres Strait Islander warriors guarding the rear of the procession that features pop culture characters such as Mickey Mouse, Batman, Predator and a flying Astro Boy. And there's also, which I particularly love, an incoming wave that references the Hokusai woodblock print under the wave of Kanagawa. How do you begin mixing these influences together and do you (laughs) go in consciously or do they begin to sort of form as you're developing the work? Um, They form as I'm composing the work directly on the block. So when it comes to my printmaking, I draw directly onto the block first um, instead of, you know, sort of going from paper paper to block and throws through that initial composition of the work that a lot of these characters, you know, sort of do start to materialise. It's a subject, you know, or a story that I've always wanted to depict, um, you know, sort of Noah's, Noah's Ark. And so that's, that's, yeah, just sort of my version. But that, that point of difference, because a number of other artists have also, you know, sort of done that, that same work. And so a point of difference is, you know, sort of in, instead of having the animals going up into the ark two by two, it's me putting in place those pop cultural, you know, sort of references um, that are now heading up into the ark. And, you know, instead of saving all the animals, you save all the pop culture. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also important, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Now, alongside your studio practice, you obviously also have your public art work. How did those large-scale public artworks sort of enter into your practice? Was it around this time that you made the decision to focus on visual arts full-time or had you been making those works previously? Um, No, I I started my first public artwork right at the time of me starting work at the regional gallery. <laughs> so, you know, I already had, you know, sort of two conflicting, yeah, um, you know, sort of scenarios right there. Um, but it wasn't until uh, I think it was 2002, which was when the, um, the, the woven fish were developed. 
And I think, you know, the creation of that particular piece of public art really put me on the map, so to speak, in terms of, you know, sort of public art practice across the country. It was the, the first major, you know, sort of work that I'd done in the, in the public realm. And it's been one of those um, amazing projects that has continued to, you know, sort of give and give. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those fish, for me, I, I lived in Cairns for a year. And whenever I think of Cairns, I think of the woven fish in the lagoon. You know, I spent many afternoons swimming in the lagoon underneath the fish. And they're so iconic uh, for that location now. And it's been described as one of the most recognisable pieces of public art in Australia, even. Um, how does it feel to have made a work that's so globally renowned? <laughs> <laughs> You don't think of these things when you're when you're developing them um, mm. at all. It's it's more you know sort of being in the moment. You know sort of when you when you're creating the work and you know sort of just developing you know and looking at that sort of aspect of it, um, and then everything else you know sort of comes later once once they're installed. Um, and being you know sort of public art um, pieces, you know sort of sculpture that sits in the public domain, they're open for the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Um, in terms, you know, public comment, um, impact from the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And they've withstood everything that has been, you know, sort of hurled at them, <laughs> as well as me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I understand that the design of the fish that uh, replicates the Torres Strait Islander practice of weaving um, palm leaves into the shape of a fish, was it difficult to translate that into stainless steel? <laughs> it was actually. Um, but if you, you know, sort of step back just a little bit further, when I sort of received the brief about what was being developed, I thought of, you know, sort of developing that idea because it ticks so many boxes in terms of, you know, the overall use of that, that space and the, you know, sort of the, the location of, of Cairns itself. So one, you know, sort of the fish icon being connected to, um, the Great Barrier Reef, the use of the, the woven aspect to the fish picked up on, you know, the, the use of natural vegetation found throughout the region, um, you know, close proximity to World Heritage listed, you know, sort of rainforests, amazing, you know, sort of palm trees for the landscape. Um, the idea of that ephemeral weaving practice that sits within the domain of, you know, sort of Indigenous material culture. And then when you look at just the, the idea of the little woven fish itself as well, those little objects were quickly woven to to decorate feasting um, tables and, you know, sort of hang from trees in the Torres Straits. And so it was about bringing people to these areas where they could eat and, you know, sort of have that interaction with, with food and with family and friends and, you know, everything that a normal, you know, sort of feasting would bring about. Mm. And there was some serious machinery involved in, you know, sort of bending the the stainless to get, the curves that we required and, you know, sort of that, that idea of the, the plaited, you know, sort of woven fish. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it came together, you know, quite quite amazingly. Did you actually weave the steel? <laughs> um, there, are, there are parts of, you know, yeah, so some of the steel being woven, um, but then there, there are other parts that, you know, sort of just mimic the, the look of that, that woven sort of steel as well. How is developing a work for public art different to creating work for a gallery context? Mm. And how does your process within that change? Um, 
When they first both start out, they are very similar. When it comes to public art, um, you need to consider public safety aspects of these sculptural pieces being um, in civic spaces where people generally interact with them a lot more than what they would in a gallery. Mm. So you go through a more robust pathway in terms of looking at how it physically, you know, will, will stand or, or lay all of the external environment and how that impacts upon the, the work itself. Everything, you know, that, that you don't need to consider when you're actually developing work for, for indoor exhibition, you know, sort of pieces. A lot more <laughs> that you need to consider, a lot more people that you need to work with from local, you know, sort of council authorities to, to engineers to amazing fabricators that um, will turn, you know, your little weird and wonderful drawings into, you know, the, the sculptures that you see um, out in um, civic spaces. But when it comes to my sculptural practice for exhibition, it's just me. Yes. I build everything, cut all the plastic, all the timber, you know, everything myself. You lug it around the studio. Yeah. <laughs> it starts off, yeah, very similar, but two different realms as, as the works, you know, sort of progress. I wanted to talk about uh, in 2018 you were commissioned to design the Athletes Parade track for the opening ceremony of the Commonwealth Games. What was it like to produce your work at such a large scale? <laughs> I don't think words can actually describe, you know, sort of seeing something like that that went from a small paper, you know, sort of sketch to a piece of lino to something that filled an entire stadium. Mm. It was it was absolutely mind blowing, and I, I remember, you know, sort of getting the. Um, getting the phone call from an organisation called Jack Morton Worldwide. Um, they're the team responsible for the opening and closing ceremonies for the games, saying, you know, they'd been scouring the um, the internet, looking for images from Australian artists, you know, or Queensland-based, you know, sort of artists that could um, develop work for for this particular project. And oh, yeah, oh, I was absolutely gobsmacked. <laughs> to be, you know, to be quite honest, <laughs> you know, um, and it's not a call you expect every day, no, is no, it? No, it's, it's not. It's not actually. Um, but it was a project that you know ended up taking, I would say, maybe eight months, if not, wow. if not longer, because it, yeah. you know. The, oh, I did, you know, the initial sort of sketching and, you know, they, they provided me with um, all the different performances that would happen, you know, sort of throughout the, the opening ceremony. That was the, the starting point for me and it was, you know, sort of filling in all of those different programs that were that were running throughout the night and physically, you know, sort of creating the, the track um, design around that program. When you look at the 10 pieces of lino block that are used to create the work, if you imagine an elliptical, you know, sort of stadium, from the two wider sides, you're looking at an area, I think it was about close to close to six metres in length there. Yeah. And then the two shorter sides, maybe about three and a half metres. And I've got, you know, a number of studio spaces here in, um, here in Cairns that I use, but I don't have physical space that is that big without 
having tables and saw horses and all sorts of other things, yes. you know, that, that crowd up that space. So I had to take all of the blocks down to a local shopping centre car park to physically lay them lay them all out and start, you know, sort of the drawing process. Yeah. <laughs> In the car park at the shopping centre. <laughs> was this late at night? Were you doing <laughs> uh, no, no, no. this this is during the day, you know, when there was some light about. Otherwise I'd have to bring my own light source and, you know, security wouldn't be uh, too too impressed, I don't think. But I had a number of security officers approach me asking, what the hell are you doing <laughs> in this car park? Um, and, you know, once I explained, you know, they, they yeah, sort of went on their way and all that sort of stuff. Um, I wasn't, you know, doing, you know, vandalist graffiti or anything like that to their car parks. They were all good. And so, like, after I drew, you know, sort of all the blocks up, it took me... Six weeks straight, um, starting work at eight in the morning, um, finishing, you know, sort of five, six-ish in the afternoon, but carving, constantly carving all day for wow. for that period of time. So, you know, yeah, start to get, you know, a bit of RSI on the, on the hands after, after that period, but... You know that that project kept me going <laughs> in terms of you know the the energy I required to to carve all all that piece, um, and so I've got you know the the physical blocks um, still here at home that were used. I do have one print of the entire um, track itself, yeah. the paper version that was created from the the lino blocks, and then I've still got. 30, 40 metres of the actual track that they used at the opening ceremony as well, rolled up into, you know, various sized um, portions that have been laying you know, around home ever since, you know, they, they were dumped in my driveway. Um, <laughs> Good to hold on to this stuff. <laughs> it certainly is. It certainly is. But, you know, it was the first time that... Um, an artist was given the opportunity to develop the um, the athletes parade track, and it was it was a real privilege to you know to be chosen to and to develop that that work. You said before that you're not classed as a traditional Indigenous artist. Can you explain to our audience why that is, despite using traditional motifs or techniques in your works? All the works themselves, whether they're sculpture, print. They all start off with that strong Indigenous storytelling, you know, sort of basis. And then over the top of that, it's it's then layered with references to, you know, sort of pop culture, my own, you know, sort of personal thoughts on various subjects that are all all related, you know, to, to the main you know, sort of story that it starts off with. And so through the layering of each and every work, it then becomes a little bit muddled, I suppose, a little bit hidden over, you know, yeah, what is a traditional piece of artwork, you know, a traditional story or a, a, a traditional mark. And while the print work that I create, a lot of it is based on traditional mark making from the Torres Straits. It's that hidden story within the work that, you know, sort of takes takes it out of that context. And I suppose the use of the, the pop culture as well um, really does help with that. But when you look at the, the sculptural work that I make, it could, yeah, it could be made by, you know, anyone. 
Absolutely. And so they all still, you know, sort of stem from, you know, that, that storytelling basis, but just the way that they're created visually, like I said, any, anyone could have, you know, yeah, sort of could have created them. And your work's also described as um, experimenting with the boundary between reality and fantasy. And what interests you about that space? Oh, it's the space, it's the space that I live in. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just the, I'm just the big kid, really. I'm, you know, <laughs> sort of surrounded in my house here by, you know, sort of figures of, um, you know, Marvel figures and Star Wars figures and lightsabers and, you know, and things like that. So it's that area of, of, of life that we all pop in and out of on, on occasion. I just live there constantly. <laughs> to, to, create the, to create the work that I do. So I'm always in this, you know, yeah, sort of fantasy, you know, sort of landscape that, that takes me away from, you know, takes me out of reality and, yeah, out of the pressures of, you know, sort of living, yeah, living in the living in society. I create my own little society in my, in my work. <laughs> Sounds like a beautiful way to be living. <laughs> I really want to talk about Wara Wara, the art of Torres Strait, because in 2021 you worked with Newcastle Art Gallery on this exhibition and it was a landmark exhibition for Newcastle Art Gallery and the most significant First Nations exhibition in the gallery's 64-year history. Can you talk to us about your experience developing that show? Oh, wow. Um, you know, sort of shows like that aren't developed by, you know, just the, the curator. Um, curator is, you know, the person that will pull the story together, look at certain works that, that fit within that story. But it's all the staff at Newcastle Art Gallery, amazing people to, to work with that, you know, I sort of, uh, I sold, I suppose, the my, my vision for the exhibition too. Starting off with your amazing um, director, Loretta Morton, um, who sort of stalked me at a um, Sydney Contemporary a, a number of years back. Um, it came over and said, you know, Brian, you know, I'm a big fan. You, you mentioned, you know, big Torres Strait exhibition. You know, are you up for the challenge? Which, you know, I agreed to, you know, I think sort of there and then. And that sort of started the relationship between myself, Loretta and, you know, the crew at... Um, at the gallery. But, you know, there was amazing support from a number of key um, community members as well. And one of those um, people who's also, you know, sort of a fellow Torres Strait artist, um, an amazing performer, is um, Toby Cedar and his family. Amazing support for, you know, both myself as well as the the gallery in, in terms of, you know, the the work that he provided for the exhibition, um, the public program, you know, sort of activities that were developed around the exhibition and just general support and, you know, sort of drumming up the, the community as well to attend um, these amazing events. It's been described as the largest Torres Strait Islander exhibition outside of the Torres Strait Islands and Queensland. What was the impact that you saw the exhibition had on the local community? The opening event itself was absolutely amazing. I didn't realise the size of the community that were living in, you know, sort of your neck of the woods. Um, so it was good to see, you know, yeah, um, families come out and celebrate this sort of significant milestone and, you know, the, the gallery bringing these, these works together, as well as the support that lenders and, you know, everyone else involved all, you know, sort of put towards um, the exhibition as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people, in, even in the city, didn't quite realise the sort of depth of the community that we had here. 
Um, and I think that exhibition has really shifted that mindset in Newcastle um, in terms of, you know, the cultural groups that we have living Yeah, yeah, that, that's right, that's right, mm. that's right. And I think it's important to do, you know, develop exhibitions such as that um, to bring in, you know, people who wouldn't normally enter spaces such as galleries and museums because, you know, they were traditionally and probably still are to a, to a certain, you know, sort of extent seen as um, institutions where only the elite go to, which may have been the case, you know, back in the day, but um, it's not the case these days. It's, you know, museums and galleries are your first port of call, you know, for, for anyone wanting to, I suppose, navigate the city or, you know, the township that they're entering. They're the one-stop shop that shows you all the expression that um, that you see, you know, sort of throughout the community itself. I like that image of a gallery, first portal, <laughs> first portal into a place. All right, Brian, thank you so much. We have reached our final question, which is, if you could have dinner with any artist from the Newcastle Art Gallery collection, who would it be and why? I, I didn't realise the extent of your collection, <laughs> to be honest. So when you sent me the link, I went on and, you know, yeah, started to go through and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, look at all the names that are just coming up. Um, so there, there are a lot of names that are very familiar to me and then there are a lot of names that aren't. And so there, there was one name that, that sprung to mind, a fellow printmaker, actually, because um, I love talking, you know, all things print. But this person is also not only, you know, just a, a printmaker, but when you sort of dig down into, you know, the mediums that are covered under printmaking, um, this person is also a lino cutter or, you know, sort of a relief printmaker. Um, so the person that I've chosen from your collection is Rue Hanks. You'd have a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I met Rue at a National Print Symposium a number of years ago. It was only a very brief, you know, sort of chat and things like that. But I heard him, you know, sort of speak. Um, he gave a presentation on on his practice and, you know, showed images and things like that. And, yeah, you know, just, just fallen in love with his works. They're absolutely amazing. They're meticulously carved. I don't know how he gets so much bloody detail into, you know, into those works. Um, but, yeah, absolutely amazing to look at. But then when you read the story behind the works and look at, you know, the imagery through, you know, through the works, they're very um, satirical. So there, there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek, mm. which I just absolutely love. So. I can see a lot of that in your work too, you know. So, yeah, yeah. We, we would do some, yeah, so, some amazing collaborative pieces, I think, me and, uh, me and Ruth. <laughs> well, um, Brian from the whole gallery team, Koyama uh, Esso, thank you for joining us today. It's been such a delightful conversation and uh, can't wait to see you next time you're in Newcastle. <laughs> Hopefully it's sometime soon. Thank you for listening to Conversations from the Collection. If you would like to know more about Brian or his works in the Newcastle Art Gallery Collection, there are links in the show notes, or you can visit the gallery's website at nag.org.au. I hope you will join us again for next week's episode with Japanese ceramic artist Kenji Yuranishi.
hopefully when they put my work you know near the window or somewhere light can entertain gives them a special moment that's the purpose of it and that's the beauty of i think relationship with the shape Conversations from the Collection is a Newcastle Art Gallery podcast. This podcast is supported by the New South Wales Government through Create New South Wales. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and share us with your friends.